Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everyone, welcome back after Christmas or New Year or both. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 to chapter 6 verse 2. So far in the book of Timothy we've been looking uh, at this letter which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. The whole letter is written as an encouragement to Timothy Um, but also an address to the church that he's at in Ephesus or the churches trying to deal with this problem of false teaching that they've had. And we looked at that in depth while we looked at chapters one to three. And then we were looking at how the gospel has shaped our lives and um, how Timothy's life has been shaped by the gospel. And now we're on a section which we looked at, we started looking at last week about how specific groups within the church are to be shaped by the gospel. So last week in particular, we looked at how widows were to be treated. And this week, the focus is on two other groups. So the first group is a group of um, the elders and how they interact with the church. Then the second group is slaves and their masters. So let's start by having a look at the first part from verse 17. Um, It'd be helpful, I think, to have a definition of what an elder might be. I don't have a definition, but I think what it says in verse 17 is helpful, where it says the elders who direct the affairs of the church. That's in the NIV, I think. In the ESV, does it say rule? Yeah, it does. Rule well. Yeah, the kind of leaders, the ones up the front, the ones kind of running the church, I guess. And, you know, he mentions in verse 17, there are those of those elders who preach and teach. So um, I think it plays out differently in different churches. But I guess, yeah, the ones that are kind of in charge. Yeah, Paul seems to use this term elder interchangeably also with overseer. Um, And we see those, those different titles for sort of the leaders and it's it's normally like a group setting so they have like a i can't remember, is it called plurality <laughs> of yes. like a group of a group of elders so it's not normally done on like an individual basis but there's a group of elders or overseers who work together in caring for the church um i found it really interesting that when looking at the word elder you can take it back all the way to the old testament and actually it was a word that came from the word for beard so the word for beard is zakan and the word for elder is zaken so it was people that had a full beard so it didn't necessarily mean your beard was gray but it meant that you were mature so maybe around 30 was the acceptable age okay and so that actually the word elder means slightly old you know it actually for us that does mean slightly older doesn't it the actual meaning of the word and so yeah that's fascinating Juliet so it brings it it back down to around 30 because that was when also in Jewish tradition that would be when um people would be allowed to to minister in the Sanhedrin so it'd be around 30 when people have a full beard 
<laughs> so um what were in this letter what were we told um the believers were meant to do with the elders how are they show respect or so i, I think this um idea of double honor much as i would love that to mean that they get paid twice the amount that other people get paid i don't think it means that i think it's sort of the honor of actually them being paid a wage but also them being appreciated and valued and respected and so i think that's what he means by the double honor the honor of yeah being paid um, and valued in that way but also making sure that you appreciate the work that the elders do on your behalf yeah verse uh in verse 18 when i first read verse 18 i was like well that's random like don't muzzle or not but apparently it's the reference to deuteronomy because god's actually really kind in lots of his laws and the ox uh that were working were allowed like he specifically mentions that they are allowed to eat like they don't muzzle the ox so that he can eat while he's working so i think it's kind of relating you know an an elder should be able to be provided for while he works and provided for well um and honored in that um and as well he he links it to luke uh the, the worker deserves his wages you know i i don't know maybe there were voices in the church that were saying that you know an elder shouldn't be paid that much or you know they weren't special or anything like that and I guess he's pushing against that because it it is a really special thing and as we're gonna see like it means that there's a long way to fall and it's harder for them in many ways but also it is a position of honor I also appreciated you know those two um quote the ox and the laborer it also really helped me to see it's hard work isn't it like an ox works really hard and a labourer works really hard. And so there's a, the, one of the translations, one of those words, the late, the labour word is toil. And that idea of um, the elders should be working really hard on behalf of the congregation. So that's a helpful reminder, isn't it? If anyone thinks, oh, it's such an easy life. You only work one day a week. Um, but actually it's, it's heavy lifting, isn't it, in God's kingdom? And I, I often joke about the state of Jumpy's study. Like, you know, it looks like an explosion has happened in there. <laughs> um, but actually, I really like that it's full of books and it's and it looks like, you know, like he is. It just looks like he is, like hard at work, reading, working at, you know, you know, it's not like he just gets up on a Sunday and says what he wants. He reads a lot and he studies a lot and he talks, you know, and he spends time discipling people. And and it is, it's jolly hard work. Um, and I, I just think, yeah, it's worthy of the honour it deserves, I think. Hmm. So in terms of application for us, I think it's probably it's similar for um, Mary's situation, but like, here because there's not a lot of formal structure or there is a formal structure but actually a lot of the meetings happen informally and in people's homes and so what we find here is that people um a little bit like paul they're like bivocational so they have their day job and then they have which they try and restore restricts you know to reduce the hours so that they can do the heavy lifting as well and I really found it like challenging because it's it's it shows the encouragement that actually you should be supporting your pastor so that they can spend more time in the word and more time doing different pastoral things. Um, and so it's like working, it's 
an interesting um, thing to think about, like how that is to be played into practice and how we can encourage um, communities to give so that they can actually, it can free up their pastor to spend more time preparing and to spend more time with um, different needy members. Yeah, that's that's a helpful challenge, isn't it? Because I guess because we're part of a slightly bigger structure, um, Paul's wage is dealt with by the bigger structure, but in most settings that is incumbent on the generosity of the congregation, isn't it, to be able to pay that wage? And I think, I guess that's part of why Paul's writing this, for the church to realise that they need to give sacrificially in order to free Timothy up to be their pastor. So the next part in this passage is how to deal with grace and how to deal carefully with a pastor's sin. Um, yeah, what did, what did you guys notice in this next I found verse 19 really helpful in that there's quite a high bar, isn't there, to be met in that two or three people have to agree before um, a charge is even considered. So I guess this fits in, doesn't it, with a lot of what the New Testament says about gossip and not talking badly about people. But yeah, it's it's relatively easy, I guess, to have a beef with a pastor, isn't it, or have something that you're frustrated by about him and to make that into a big deal. Whereas this is saying, no, unless there's two or three people that agree, then it shouldn't even be considered. And so I just think that's protection, isn't it, for a minister who you are just quite vulnerable because you are dealing with people, often individually, you're speaking into hard places in their lives and people don't always like that or appreciate what you say. So I just think you do feel... I feel it on behalf of Jump Here, a vulnerability when you're trying to speak the truth in love to people, but they misinterpret that or they don't like that. You are left quite vulnerable. So I feel like this verse is so helpful in saying, yeah, there's a high bar. But then it's really helpful that it's followed by the verse after, isn't it? Because of course, there are times when ministers do fail and need to be held accountable for that. I think we're seeing this a lot in the church worldwide these days um there's a lot of stuff coming out against various pastors which is really hard to read we're somewhat protected from this in the uk because we don't have these mega churches that have like one person you know who's very kind of well known and very much takes the lead like we often it's on a smaller scale whereas you know you hear of people in in the us like really kind of quite famous christians who have just have so far to fall because you know there so many people know of them and they their ministry is flourishing and amazing and then suddenly there's these accusations and unfortunately i think they're held up to a higher standard in a way because they are teachers of God's word they have a really important that you know they're a shepherd and if the shepherd falls then it really affects all the sheep doesn't it so you know like it says in verse 20 it says you are to reprove before everyone these elders who are sinning so that others may take warning and unfortunately that's I think that has to happen because there's so many people who are affected that it it almost needs to happen publicly. I noticed, Mary, there's the grace at the beginning of the verse is it's only for those who persist in sin. So it sounds to me like there's there is space to call them out privately on their sin. You see what I mean? Before then, they're rebuked in the presence of all. That's only if they persist in sin. Hmm. 
So I think okay, so it's like a it's a continual verb there because in the in the NIV it just says the elders who are sinning. Okay, so yeah, in the um, the extremely sound version it says as for those who persist in sin, which I think yeah is an accurate translation because I I guess the the things that we read in the other parts of the New Testament about you go to somebody privately you know, with your with your two or three witnesses, you go to them privately and confront them. And it's if they then refuse to repent or acknowledge their sin, that then it becomes public. So I think it mirrors those other passages. From what I read, it was the persistence of sin. But then, yeah, I think the consequences of that, of the persistence is very dramatic, isn't it? Or it's as heavy as it needs to be. Um, Although I do think it's really healthy when a pastor addresses his sin publicly because so I'm just thinking of a particular example um, of a church in the US called The Village. And there was, I think, uh, one one of the lead pastors um, was called out by somebody for something that he'd done, some private messages that he'd sent. And I don't know the context, but I know that he stood up in front of his congregation. He removed himself from the from serving for a while and he stood up in front of his congregation and said what had happened and he's I think he's actually back teaching and preaching now but I think it was a really healthy kind of because everyone talks about it don't they and everyone's you know there is gossip however much you don't want there to be gossip there is gossip so I think it's kind of healthy when someone like like he obviously even though he was repentant and he didn't carry on in his sin he still stood up and said you know this has happened and i'm really sorry and you know and i'm i'm going to take a break and then i'm going to come back and i you know so i feel like there is a place to do it publicly just because everyone's talking about it anyway yeah that's a really good ex- that. that's a good example isn't it of somebody really humbly owning it and um stepping back and and, and yeah just acknowledging the need for a bit of time to process and to make some changes i i think the other mm. thing in this verse is the the need for courage from congregation members in actually bringing sin to the pastor or to the one of the elders mm. because I, mm. I my hunch is in in those other examples that you were using mary people have known that there's been a repeated pattern or a, a weakness in the character and they've been too scared to bring it because of the size of the personality or the flourishing nature of the ministry. And they brush things under the carpet. And so then it explodes in a really awful way. Whereas I guess, you know, if you do find yourself seeing something, then being brave and taking it to the pastor is really helpful, isn't it? For the good of the whole congregation. I think also you, you're caring about the salvation of your pastor as well because if they have this unrepentant hidden sin that like the sad example that I can think of is that this stuff coming to light after they've died and I just feel like it's it's so terrible that this has all been covered up to the point of their death as well and so you're in this you don't know what their position before Christ was and it just raises up all these questions and you really want like it, the loving thing to do for your pastor is to reveal this kind of thing as well so that they can repent and they can be you know yeah right before God yeah and it's interesting how that verse ends isn't it verse 20 
so that the rest may stand in fear. Like there is a, there's a sense in which we, there needs to be a fear of God, doesn't there, within our churches. And they're not just cozy clubs, but there is a sense in which we're called to account, aren't we? And we're called, um, especially those in leadership, to set an example. So, I yeah. I think mm. it's dangerous when a pastor is seen as kind of untouchable. Um, yeah. And therefore people can't feel like they can't approach him and his elders protect him instead of holding him to account like i i think that's what happens in these situations and yeah let's look further into um verses 21 to 24 what do you think paul was trying to say to timothy here I think 21 is kind of a reflection of the fact that there's not just an audience of the church to these things that are happening, uh, but there's an audience of of God, the Father, Son and Spirit, the angels. So it's like widening the camera angle, isn't it? Like what happens in our churches just about us and about now it's about the the worldwide church and the the heavenly realms. Um, Yeah, it just gives a bit of perspective, doesn't it? It? like this this isn't just people that will hold you accountable god will hold you accountable to your actions yeah it's helpful isn't it and i guess like quite a few times when paul in this letter even paul has authority himself as an apostle which he uses here when he says i charge you but he's also reminding timothy and the church that it's not just him he's you know he's speaking with the whole of heaven behind him almost. Yeah, and like it's possible in Timothy's handling of these instructions for him to have partiality and favoritism and he's like there's a bigger audience to what you're to what you're doing and how you react to this. And like don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's kind of in reference to the ordaining of people for certain tasks especially I guess elders and deacons and it's a reminder that as he seeks to um, build up and raise up leaders, don't do it hastily. Like it's really important that they are people that are called to this and are right for it and who whose lives, like we already looked at in Timothy, whose lives reflect their faith in a really healthy way. Yeah, and it's really helpful, isn't it? There's the caution that he encourages Timothy in and that whole, I just found the verses 24 and 25 so realistic that it takes time to know people well and to understand them. Mm. And some people that appear impressive actually might not be. And other people that you think are maybe a bit dull, actually that can be faithfulness, can't it? And really genuine, humble faith. I just think our culture at the minute is so juxtaposed with this, isn't it? That we are all about the big charismatic personalities and we don't care about Mm. the faithful character underneath. And actually... I, yeah, I just found these verses so helpful in saying it takes time to really know what motivates people, why they do what they do. Take that time, Timothy, to to know and discern people before you're making a decision about who will be good leaders, because it's not always who you think it's going to be. I love verse 23, where he's like, just a little aside of stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. This little kind of pastoral snippet of Paul's relationship with with Timothy it's a little bit random isn't it well it is yeah (laughs) you can always imagine him writing it slightly to the side 
of what he's writing just as like and and then it actually Side gets note. put in imagine it's in brackets what about in the NIV yeah. Barry no it's not um it's just its own little sentence um <laughs> but I do you know in those days actually the water wasn't clean and so people did used to drink wine so that they didn't get sick so it's it's interesting isn't it like Paul loves Timothy and he's like oh I heard you're often ill so you know maybe you should drink a bit more wine <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a sign of their intimacy and like how well he knows Timothy, isn't it? That he feels yeah. free to give him dietary advice. <laughs> yeah, as the letter is like read out to the church, Timothy's like cowering under his chair. <laughs> <laughs> With his wine in his hip flask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go, going back to um, 24 and 25, I really... The word like conspicuous is used like a couple of times, isn't it? And I think it's really helpful having the the verse 21 because with God and Christ and the heavenly realm as we're before heaven, there's no conspicuousness there or like hidden. There's nothing hidden, is there? And so all of these things, Paul's kind of being clear, like for us here, we can't really see that clearly about what's going on in people's hearts or in their minds or in their private lives but actually God he's there and he knows our thoughts and he knows our hearts and he knows what we do in secret and so it's quite a revealing thing but also one that should free people to be able to yeah as they are trying to teach the good news of the gospel to other people that they're actually living it out themselves with um, because everyone's going to sin. Our pastors are all going to sin. There's almost a pressure for them to be perfect when that's not possible. I guess it also made me think about the value of living in community as church family where you are known. And I guess, yeah, pastors or elders that are on a pedestal and live away you know have closed doors it's a lot easier then isn't it for hint for, for sin to be hidden whereas if you live in community with people then actually you're you're welcoming their input into your lives aren't you and just because you're an elder doesn't mean that you're um a different category like we're all sinners seeking grace aren't we and needing god's help to change us and so actually that sort of the, the role of being known and getting to know other people in our church family is really important to help with that, isn't it? It's like a shared vulnerability. So um, moving on to the start of chapter six. So this little, these couple of verses are just addressing slaves and their masters and the relationship between them and how that's shaped by the gospel. I think it's helpful at this point just to, step back a bit and look at what slavery would have looked like for them because i think what we have in our minds of what slavery is was actually a little bit different from what was there in the first century yeah i feel like we looked at this a little bit when we read philemon yeah i guess there's a there's a difference isn't there between the sort of sla the sort of racially based slavery of sort of the americas and the slavery that was here because i think here it was just one of the so, so it was it was wrong, and it and we we would condemn it because it was still people were under the ownership of somebody else, and so the slavery, 
and any slavery is just that isn't it that somebody is owned by somebody else but i think the slavery of this time wasn't as harsh as the slavery of the um, um sort of negro americans in that here you, there were lots of different slaves within society so you could have loads of different roles within society and some people actually chose to be slaves because it meant that they could become roman citizens and could enter society well so yeah it was still wrong but it was a lot more part of um the structure of society than we understand it on slave slave ships or slave trading Mm, probably an equivalent uh, position now would be people in like really low wage employment who feel trapped and are like bound to their contract or um or for example some people who are on like fixed term contracts and have that uncertainty of you know their income and that kind of thing that would be an equivalent it's interesting isn't it the because paul here isn't addressing the rightness or wrongness of slavery is he he is addressing people who, because in that day and age, slavery was all over the world. It was a normal part of society. And obviously, he probably had his own opinions about it. But in this letter, he's just addressing slaves who were coming into the church um, or, or who were in the church and showing them, like not saying, come on, rise up, revolt against your leaders, because um, he probably knew that this wasn't the right place or time for that. But he was saying, this is how you should act towards your master, like on with honor, consider your masters worthy of full respect. Uh, because like he has throughout this letter said, um, how your faith needs to play out in how you act. And I, yeah, it was, it's kind of reminds me of Jesus when the Jews thought that Jesus had come to kind to kind of release them their bondage to Rome but actually Jesus was preaching the gospel and that just wasn't the time um at that time it kind of reminded me a bit of that um I don't know what you guys think about that yeah I read something that said probably about half the church would have been slaves in some form and so actually it was a massive part of the structure of society back then and it would have totally overthrown society if Christians had called people out of slavery and so, yeah, for whatever reason, Paul chooses to address. Well, and the other thing I find helpful in the context of this chapter is the next part of chapter six is all about contentment. And so I think that's the framework that Paul's working in. And he's speaking to slaves about how, as Christians, we can be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. So I think it's helpful to read the whole of chapter six, even though we're not looking at that today, because... That's the framework that Paul's working in, that he's he's encouraging slaves that because we know we're free in Christ, um, there is a contentment that you can have even in that position. Yeah, because this is the same Paul who speaks to everybody as equal, you know, slaves or free. Is that in Galatians? So we know from the context that Paul doesn't think that slaves are kind of worse people or, you know, they're more sinful or something like that. Like he... In verse two, he talks about, um, you know, slaves should serve their masters even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So it's kind of like a two way thing. You're going to be worshipping sometimes. In some cases, you're going to be worshipping at church alongside your masters and you love each other. But you are in these certain roles in society and therefore 
you know, respect your master, but also, you know, this should be within a context of your of your master really loving you well as well and devoted to your welfare. And I guess that's a note to people who find themselves in positions of power as well. Like, are you devoted to the welfare of the people under you? Because that, again, is a, is an outworking of your faith. Yeah, I think this this is very much about like power and weakness balance. Because I think there are lots of people, I don't, probably with the benefit system in the UK, it's less seen that people feel trapped in a certain job just because of their need to survive. I feel like we see that quite a lot here, people having to work and sometimes working in really bad conditions or like find themselves doing a lot of hours. And it's almost like, because some of these servants or slaves then were more like servants or bond servants because they had contracts, they had um, a fixed wage. And so like, I think we can find like equivalent positions in society now where people would feel like they have to keep working or they can't pay off their debts or they have to, they feel trapped in a particular job because they can't find a new one. And in these situations where actually how they treat their, their employers is like a big challenge, isn't it, for them and also but how their employers, if they become believers, treat them, that's, again, like a big challenge for people who are in power. Well, I was just going to say, I think reading between the lines in verse two, it looks like, doesn't it, that um, slaves have been a, a little bit um, taking their foot off the gas because they've got believing masters. And so they think, oh, I don't need to work as hard. It doesn't matter. And they're slightly taking the mick. And Paul's like, no, as Christians, we want to work hard and give um our best to everything that god puts before us so yeah i think it's helpful sometimes isn't it to and that com- that applies doesn't it to us it might we might have a kind boss who seems quite lenient and or is a christian and so we think i don't need to work hard yeah and actually mm-hmm. paul's saying we commend the gospel don't we and we commend jesus by being diligent and working hard in whatever circumstance God puts us. And I think it's worth saying that the abolition of the slave trade was led by Christians in the UK. Like it wasn't just ignored because of this. Like this is speaking into a context, but the principles that Paul would have had, like the principles of everyone being equal and what the slave trade became was just so horrendous. The sad thing was, I think the slave owners, a lot of them used passages like this to support what they were doing. Mm. And I think the sad thing Mm. is, is that actually slavery, when Jesus, around Jesus's time was like a much fairer like people would willingly go into slavery so that they could like pay off their debt and then it would end and then they could be free again and so it was like much more like an employment contract whereas like slavery was like Mm. taking people that didn't want to be taken (laughs) to do things that they didn't want Mm. to do without fair pay without like fair contractual terms or anything so i think it's like it's hard because i think partly we can see times in history where passages are used for bad purposes as well because they're taken out of context and yeah and so like it's it's I think it was right when Christians later on in history pushed back against what what slavery became you know yeah stealing people from their homes and putting them 
into forced labor. Like that is not the context here, but I was very much like Amazing Grace, the film. That's a really good one to watch about. Oh, what's his name? Um, Wilberforce. Yeah, Wilberforce and his fight against slavery. It almost feels like these passages should be translated differently because of the way we understand them now. Some translations do use like bond servants, don't they? Or yeah, I yeah think so. to be fair, that is what the ESV says. Let yeah. all who are under a yoke as a bond servant. Yeah, that's a you're right. That's a helpful translation because it does slightly change, doesn't it, how you view it? But that's really helpful. Yeah, it's it's helpful because I think in all our minds, that's what we acknowledges slavery is whereas like i don't think jesus would ever condone that and the apostles and the early church or even yeah any church structure so um any challenges that you guys found from this passage um i was encouraged and challenged by that reminder that the lord sees all that we do he knows our hearts he knows our motives and so the encouragement then to work hard but also that when when you're misunderstood or people don't um yeah assign good motives to you it's so encouraging isn't it to know that the lord sees our hearts and um yeah the truth is clear to him yeah i think it's quite freeing i i felt encouraged by that part as well that like god sees everything it just feels so free because i think we tend to like to hide because that's who we are before other people and it's really refreshing to be seen completely yet loved and forgiven completely that's a good thought to end on i think (laughs) okay Uh, uh, thanks for joining us this week everyone Um, and yeah look forward to continuing Timothy next week bye bye